Thank you, Valerie. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 to 12 this morning. Colossians 1, 1 to 12. In a little less than a week, next Saturday to be exact, Alabama Crimson Tide are going to march into Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, and are going to hand the Florida State Seminoles the first loss of the season. I ain't learned much, but I know that. And the time between now and then is going to be filled with us gathering around our coffee pots at work, talking about what's going to happen in the game, or what might happen in the game. We might say things like, I don't know how they're going to stop Jalen Hurts. Who do you think is going to win the Heisman Trophy this year? I think he's got a chance. You think he's going to go in the draft at some point? You think somebody's going to pick him up? I can tell you right now it'll be the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) Only they would pick a quarterback whose last name is Hurt. (laughs) But we'll have these discussions. There is a spirit about this town. And all of you recognize it. It's all Alabama all the time. And it's contagious. And we all get it. We all understand it. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, he's not going to dump on my football season on the first Sunday, is he? (laughs) No, I'm not. I just want to put our minds in this attitude that we all know and that we can all relate to, that we all immediately understand. Even if you're not a football fan, or maybe you're a fan of another team for some reason, (laughs) you can certainly relate to these things in life that unite hordes of people at one time, that gather us all together under the same banner, and we can all speak the same language. It grabs our attention It changes the way we talk to each other in some cases. It changes the way we dress. If we have a casual Friday at work, we're probably going to be wearing crimson and white. It changes the way we think about our lives. The way we organize our schedules. The series that we're going to be beginning today, I've called Heavenly Minded. As we study the book of Colossians, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be a family of faith, what it means to be gathered under the banner of Christ, to have a heavenly-minded attitude and character about us. We're going to see how it informs the way we think and the way we act and the way we talk. In this series, through the book of Colossians, Paul's going to advocate that Christians be heavenly-minded. He is going to command that we be heavenly-minded. In Colossians 3, he says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And he'll allude to it many more times throughout the book, enough at least to give it the title, Heavenly-Minded. 
Paul is decidedly in favor of Christians being heavenly-minded. Contrary to the cultural saying, to be heavenly-minded is to be no earthly good, Paul would say otherwise. He advocates and commands for us to be heavenly-minded. And then the Holy Spirit, who is empowering Paul's words without error, is also then decidedly in favor of us being heavenly-minded. So my prayer is that as a church... At the end of all this, we too will be decidedly in favor of being heavenly minded. So since we're going to be dealing with this idea so much in the coming weeks, I thought it'd be helpful maybe to to put a definition on what heavenly mindedness is. Now to be sure, heavenly minded isn't a phrase that's used in the New Testament or in the Bible at all, at least exactly, but the concepts are there throughout In addition to Paul's words there in in Colossians 3, Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we might say that Jesus is saying there be kingdom-minded. There's priorities involved. Be kingdom-minded, which I think is the same thing that Paul means when he says set your minds on the things above. And then in Romans 8, 5, Paul explains what it doesn't mean to be heavenly minded, what it means to be fleshly minded. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So to be heavenly minded according to Jesus would be to seek to live righteously and to seek first God's priorities in the world. And then to be fleshly minded would be to refuse to submit to God's law. The opposite of what Jesus says. To refuse to submit to God's law, to be hostile toward God. So when I use the phrase heavenly minded, here's what I mean. I think the definition's already up there on your screen. To have one's mind governed entirely by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. To have one's mind governed entirely by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. This is what it means to be heavenly minded. Now this isn't scripture. This is just piling together a lot of definitions of what it means to seek God's kingdom first. So this is going to be the definition that we're working through as we go through this series. So you see what I'm getting at. This is not someone who is lost in a daydream about when the role is called up yonder. Or someone that's thinking about heaven in a way of, man, it would be so good if I was there right now and could escape the troubles of this life. I'm talking about a people that are so captured by the grace of God that they have received in Christ. So captivated in their minds by this grace that they have received in eternal life. That all the trials and afflictions and petty arguments and gossip and backbiting, all of that pales by comparison to being found in Him without spot or blemish. And it forever impacts the way that we live. That's what I mean. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we subordinate all other concerns of life, 
Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? That's what I'm talking about. In our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And in this prayer, in Colossians 1, 1-12, we're going to get a fuller picture of this heavenly hope that we're all called to reflect upon, to think about. And then we're going to discuss very specifically what that means for our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, in the coming months and years. Let's look at our passage, Colossians 1, 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, and as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We can see here, just in the first couple of verses, that this is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Christians in Colossae. And we see that there he says, saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. But as far as background on the book of Colossians, there is just not a ton that we know for sure. Here's what we are pretty certain about, that Paul did not found the church at Colossae. And in fact, we don't think he's even really met many people, if any, in the church at Colossae. The one person that he does know is a man he identifies in verse 7 called Epaphras, which it seems as though has actually planted the church at Colossae. He says there in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, we would take that to mean then probably he has planted that church. And is there telling Paul about the ongoings and inner workings of the church and the troubles that have arisen up in Colossae. Now, in this first section of the book, Paul is explaining his prayer for the church in Colossae. And in so doing, he lays a framework for what it means to have a heavenly hope and why we must have a heavenly hope as Christians. 
And I want, to, I want us to look at just a few of those this morning. The first one that he says there is, 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 is here in verses 3 to 5. He says, a heavenly hope is the foundation of the gospel. Look with me there in 3 to 5. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard uh, of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And there's two things that Paul identifies here pretty quickly in this section of the text that's consistent for all the believers in Colossae. First is that they have a faith in Christ Jesus. You see that there at the beginning of verse 4. And then, and, and this is going to be a very important aspect of the letter of Colossians that we're going to hit on next week and the week after, is what it actually means to have faith in Christ, who it is that we actually believe in that we're united under. So Paul makes it clear that he's rejoicing first because they have a faith in Jesus Christ. And then second, he says there at the end of verse 4, they have a love for all the saints. Now some Baptists get really nervous when you use the word saints. So just rest assured, I think what the term saint means there is the same thing it means in verse 2 when he says the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. I think that's all one collection of people. Saints and faithful brothers is just called by the saints. It's an extra spiritual way of saying Christians. All right. So if you want to, say, you want to impress your Christian friends, you call them saints and faithful brothers in Christ. All right. Here's Paul saying that here. But, but I want to focus our attention on verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and I'll be reading from the ESV until a better translation comes out. But here in the ESV, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, there's a couple other translations that make it a little bit more explicit of what Paul is actually getting at. The NIV puts it like this, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven makes it more explicit, and it's not quite really that close to the original language. The ESV is a little closer, but still, it's getting at the point, the heart of what Paul is saying. You see what's happening here. The foundation of the Colossian faith in Christ and the foundation of the Colossian love for the brothers is founded on the hope that they have, not in this life, but in the life to come. Then he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. In other words, the Colossian church heard the gospel of truth and what was offered to them. That it was not ultimately a hope for this life, but what was to come. And what was the outcome? What happened as a result of them hearing this gospel of a heavenly hope? They professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was their only way to it. And they had a love for the brothers around them. The fellow members of the body of Christ. So in other words, laying claim to this eternal hope changed everything about who they are as people. Changed everything about what they believed in and what they thought of the people around them. Changes everything about how they see and treat their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It's probably more obvious why this hope of eternal life would bring someone to Jesus. It does that every day. He's the only pathway to eternal life. It goes through him, right? So it's pretty clear as to why that would happen. But why a love for the saints? Why would it produce in them a love for the brothers and sisters? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but a couple come to mind. Because if I'm going to be spending eternity with my brothers and sisters that are on my left and my right, if I'm going to be serving the Lord side by side with them, united under one mission, then I better get used to seeing them. I better start to love them. We're going to spend a lot of time together. In fact, human beings in general, Christian or not Christian, become eternal souls in light of this heavenly hope. They have a value because they're created in the image of God. If they're brothers and sisters, then I'm going to be serving the Lord side by side with them. But if they're unbelievers, then they're going to hell without this gospel. That there is something that happens after death. And I need to be concerned about it. Because I believe in this eternal hope of the gospel. Second, because in eternity, there's no room for things like gossip and backbiting. And slander and ill will. We won't even have a desire to do these things. But do you see, when your mind is so captivated by eternity and what life is like serving around the throne of God, then it changes everything about how I respond now. I don't have to wait until that day when I get there, when the roll is called up yonder. I don't have to wait until then. I know what it's like to please God now and to serve Him now, so I can have that now with my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not waiting until you get there. You're not daydreaming about the days when this will all be over. You begin thinking and acting about it now. A heavenly-minded person that has his mind captured by the hope of heaven will lock arms with his brothers and sisters because they're family. They will make amends over wrongs suffered. Because if God has forgiven this individual, then who am I to hold a grudge? If God, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of the universe, has said, I forgive you, am, is my standard of justice higher than his? That I should still look on this person and say, well, but he still has some guilt. But Lord, do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she said? We forgive and make amends. A heavenly hope is the foundation of the gospel. Second, the gospel of this heavenly hope, it bears fruit in every culture. The gospel of the heavenly hope bears fruit in every culture. Look at what Paul says here in verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
Now, we think Paul wrote the book of Colossians, we're pretty sure, during his Roman imprisonment towards the end of his life because of how closely Colossians and Ephesians line up with one another. But if that's true, then by this point in Paul's life, the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and is now quickly working its way to the ends of the earth as it hits the Roman Empire and catches fire. So what started off as a small problem in the just the Jewish community with this disturbance known as Jesus Christ and then led to a small sect known as the Way has caught fire and is spreading to the ends of the earth quickly. Paul says, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. So in other words, the gospel's traction in the lives of the Colossians is being replicated in the rest of the world. Now what is the reason for the traction of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians? Well, he already told us. The hope that's laid up for them in heaven. That was the traction. That was what started the fire. And it's starting a fire around the world. The rest of the world is being attracted by this. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the very foundation of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has made a way of escape from eternal damnation. He has provided eternal life. And what has happened in the lives of the Colossian people when they heard this news? They came to faith in Christ and they developed a love for the saints around them. So Paul's saying everyone else is getting attracted by the same good news. It's catching fire everywhere in the community, in the communities around you. So let's walk down that logical track just one more step. When a church is filled with heavenly-minded individuals that really get it and begin living out their faith as if it were real, and they begin proclaiming Christ in their heavenly-mindedness, they go out proclaiming the gospel, Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And then they proceed to love one another unconditionally and care for one another unceasingly. It testifies to the world of the truth of what they're preaching. It says to the world, not only is it true, but look at what it's done to my life. Look at what it's done to the lives of the community around me. Do you see how we love one another? It's the marker of a Christian. I think Jesus said it best, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? How? If you have love for one another. It's the marker of Christianity. People should be looking at our community and saying, those are Christians. How do you know? Look at how they love one another. Look at how they love the community around them. There's no question in my mind, those are Christians. Do you see the rest of the world out there? Just turn on the news. The rest of the world is eating itself. Our country is devouring its neighbors. We see brief moments of unity. We saw that this week in the solar eclipse. I don't see any seeing eye dogs in here, so I guess you put on your glasses. 
But for just a moment, everybody put down their torches and pitchforks. They put on those dorky-looking glasses, and they stared up into the sun. They looked at the corona. They took pictures and posted them all over Instagram. So even if you weren't there, you could still see it. And then what happened? As soon as the moon moved one more click over to the whatever direction, <laughs> they picked back up their torches and pitchforks and commenced to devouring once again. Has no staying power. Has no lasting impact. It's false unity. But look at the flip side of the church community. What happens when two Christians or a group of Christians, a body of Christians, who are all glory bound, we're all looking at the same heaven, but can't stand to be in the room together. They can't be around somebody else without talking about somebody else. They can't stop their fighting. What happens when people walk into the doors of that kind of church? Coming from a world that is devouring itself. Coming into a church where people inside the church are devouring themselves. It can only lead you to one of two possible conclusions. Either the gospel is not real, or those people in there don't have it. When a church is divided, it's palpable. It becomes a tangible reality. You can see it, you can taste it, you can feel it. So how does the church, how does the gospel catch fire in Tuscaloosa? How does the gospel, through this church, become a bonfire in this community? Each one of us, by the Spirit's help, resolves to have our minds governed entirely by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. That's each and every person sitting in their spot, in their pews. Each one of us resolves to have our minds governed entirely by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. We remember why we came to Christ in the first place. Because He is the only way to eternal life. And it is the same thing that will draw others to Him. As they see your love for one another, as they see your love for Christ, and as they hear you proclaim the gospel of an eternal hope. I'm always hopeful every Sunday that I get to preach, which is going to be a lot. <laughs> I'm always hopeful that someone will have wandered in here. Maybe looking for hope. Maybe at your wit's end. Maybe having seen a lot of terrible things around you, or maybe even having done a lot of terrible things. And if that's you, then let me tell you very succinctly, everyone in this room has grievously offended God himself. Every single one of us. Whether by outright actions or our thoughts that plague us daily. Every single one of us is worthy of eternal punishment. But the reason we're here celebrating is because God, knowing that we were in that state, sent His only Son, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life 
a life I could never live, but not take the rewards for that perfect life. Instead, go to the cross and suffer the punishment that I deserve on my behalf. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and right now he rules the nations where he is gathering his people from the four corners of the earth. And the Father has fixed a time in the future, and it could be at any moment where he will send Christ back to judge the living and the dead. Friend, this is the eternal life that I'm offering. That in Christ, you can escape judgment and wrath to come. And forgiveness and eternal life can be yours simply by placing your faith in Christ. By no other means. Accepting His substitute on your behalf. You can place your faith in Him simply by just confessing your sins to Him and trusting Him for forgiveness. And it's only through Him that you can have this eternal hope that we're talking about. But this is the gospel of the heavenly hope that's bearing fruit in the world even to this very day. The last thing I want us to see here is that the gospel of heavenly hope should continue to grow in us. It's not something that stops. It continues to grow in us. Look with me at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now he said back in verse 6, if you look there, he says in verse 6, you heard it and understood. And now he prays in verse 9, for the Colossians to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. He said back in verse 6 that it's bearing fruit. This gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. And then he prays for the Colossians in verse 10 that they bear fruit in increasing. Uh, that they're bearing fruit and increasing. So, so Paul's prayer is that the Colossians, what they heard and what they believed back in the beginning, this good news of eternal life, that it would continue to grow. That they would just continue. They would continue in what had been established in them from the very beginning. They would keep going and not lose heart. He wants them to continue by God's grace. Since God was the one that began the good work in them, Paul is now just praying that he will see it through to completion, that God will enable them to complete this task. And then he gives them four evidences. Four evidences, midway through verse 10 there, you can see. He points to four observable, tangible ways in which they know that this fruit is growing and increasing in them. And he lists them for us. We don't even have to guess at what they are. They're right here listed for us. He says, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And then you look in verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And then in verse 12, he says, with joy, giving thanks, or giving thanks with joy. Now, these four things, for all of you grammar nerds out there, I know there's some. Are there any grammar nerds out here? All right, some, there's one or two. I see a couple of hands. I see some husbands raising some wives' hands. I get it. I understand. So for all of you grammar nerds out here, there's four participles that he gives in this list. 
bearing fruit. That's a, that's a participle there, bearing fruit. Increasing in the knowledge. That's, that's, that's a, another participle. Being strengthened or empowering. That's another uh, uh, participle. And then giving thanks. And then I think it should be giving thanks with joy. You may have that a little different in your Bible and your translation, but I think it fits with the pattern that he's saying, I'm giving thanks with joy. It's another thing that complements those participles like he does in the rest of the list there. The point is that these are tangible means whereby you can see that the Lord is growing you and maturing you in faith by these tangible means. So wherever you go, you're bearing fruit. Now that can mean a lot of things. Bearing fruit is a lot of things in the life of a believer, but not least of which, disciples are being made and people are being edified. So we have to ask the question, if that's the test, if that's the understanding of this is how we know that the the gospel is bearing fruit in my life, that this eternal hope is, is growing in me, then we have to ask the question of ourselves, am I bearing fruit wherever I go? Are my relationships marred by destruction or are they, marred by, are they marked by encouragement? Are they marked by discipleship growth? Am I making disciples of the people around me in my own life? He says, you are increasing in the knowledge of God. You're desiring to know more. You have an insatiable appetite for the understanding of God and His will. You're not content to learn the things that you learned in the past and just sit on those forever. You want to keep going and move and grow. So we have to ask the question then, is that you, are you growing or are you bored? You're having strength. You're gaining in strength. I think what he means here is you're being strengthened so that you can keep going. That's what he means there. He says, for all endurance and patience. So you have this supernatural ability to not quit, to not lose heart, to put your mind down, and to put your head down, and no matter how hard it gets around you, you continue going about the work that Christ has set you here to do, to make disciples, to encourage those around you, to uplift the name of Christ in the community at large. Paul's later going to say in this, in this very same letter, For this I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's what, that's, he's getting at the same thing. He's being strengthened in the same way that he's asking that the Colossians be strengthened. And then last year, because of what the Lord has done, are we living lives of thanksgiving back to him? We're going to spend a little bit more time on this in subsequent weeks, but think about this for just a second. Would your family describe you as a person of gratitude or a person of attitude? Again, here in verse 12, Paul points to God the Father being the one that qualified them to share in the inheritance, and and he's praying that the Lord will finish it, but why? Why? We have to answer that question. Why is he praying that the Lord will finish this in these particular ways? Because back in verse 10, this is why. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And in Ephesians 4.1, he says it this way, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's because they have been called by the name of Christ. That's why he wants it to grow. That's why he wants it to fill their lives. That's why he wants the communities around them to be impacted by this same gospel. 
because it's the name by which they have been called. They represent the name of Christ. It's easy to unite under our football teams. It's easy to high-five people we've never met, living lifestyles we don't really agree with, celebrating over some people we've never met, doing some things with a ball we've never held. We find it easy to start conversations around Heisman Trophy candidates and potential winners week after week. But those things are only temporal. They have absolutely no eternal value whatsoever. We have to press on toward the growth of this church, not because we have a mortgage to pay, That's ridiculous. We press on toward the growth of this church and the health of this body. Not because we have a mortgage to pay, but because we represent the name of Christ in the community of Tuscaloosa. This means that all of our actions should be informed by this thought. That everywhere we go, it should mark our thinking. There's no worthless conversations. There's no waitresses that just bring our food. There's no tips we just, we just write on the line. All of it now has meaning and worth because there are eternal souls walking around us all day, every day. And we represent the gospel in the community to them. Having a heavenly mindset changes your perspective on everything. Everything becomes a matter of heaven or hell. Everything becomes a matter of life and death. I want to set about doing what God has put me here to do. What does he find worthwhile? What does he find valuable? I want to find those same things valuable. I want to find those same things worthwhile. I want to be set to do what he's put me here to do. And it's very simple. Making disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. And a healthy church certainly helps in that process and fosters the disciple-making environment. But we don't have to guess as to what the God's will for our church is. He told us in no uncertain terms. This is it. That's all you're here to do. Is to do that. We need to push toward health of our church body. Toward growth and vibrancy so that we can honor the name to which we have been called. So we can turn our minds toward heaven. As if we're standing in front of the throne of God at this very moment. Now, what does all that mean for EBC? What does all that mean for our church community right now? There are three things that I want you to know going forward. We're going to shift some conversations. We're going to change the way we think and change the way we talk. And it's going to happen slowly, 
But you can bet if you come to my office and have an appointment with me or you catch me in a side hallway, I'm probably going to bring these things to your attention and ask you these questions. So you just have your answers prepared now. I'm telling you in advance what's on the test. All right. First, we're going to shift the conversation from finger-pointing to soul-searching. When there are problems, whether it be in a marriage or in friendships or in a church community, we begin to overlook the logs in our own eye in favor of the speck in our brother's eye and point those specks out. We're really, we tend to be pretty good at that just as human beings. We're going to shift the conversation from finger-pointing to soul-searching. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to overlook our neighbor's sin. That's not what that means. That's not, in fact, even a qualifier of a healthy church. A healthy church actually does confront sin. But hear me, a healthy church confronts sin in the proper order. First, we deal with the logs in our own eye. We start owning up to the problems that we contributed to the situation. The things that we said and the things that we did. Where was, where was I at fault in, in this? Regardless of any conflict that's ever gone on in this church in the past or that will go on in the future, if you knew about it, you played a part in it. Maybe you were too vocal. Maybe you weren't vocal enough. Maybe when you spoke up, you had a tone of cynicism. Maybe in your heart, you were just truly hoping that your brother and sister would leave and maybe that would solve the problem. And if you've ever thought in this sermon, yeah, get them. That's the tone I'm talking about. That's the attitude that I'm pointing to. Let's own up to the parts that we played in any strife or conflict that's gone on in the church. But then what does Jesus say? Then he, he doesn't say, then you can see clearly to point to your brother's speck. He says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of his eye. It's help that you're rendering to your brother. It's not accusation. It's not pointing a finger. It's help. You're rendering first aid to this brother or sister. When sin is confronted in the conversa- congregation, it's as a medic would point to a health issue. You're rendering first aid to the brother's soul. Second, we're going to shift the conversation from frustration to fruit. I didn't mean for those to alliterate. We're going to shift the conversation from frustration to fruit. I want to stop complaining and start rejoicing over the fruit that the Lord is producing through this congregation. Who has the Lord put on your heart to share the gospel with? How are you obeying or struggling to obey? What sorts of things has the Lord put on your heart is He convicting you about and that you're struggling with today? That's fruit. He's convicting you. That's fruit of the Holy Spirit. He convicts those He loves. Besides your children, is there anyone that you're discipling to know Christ better? How can we help? How can we rejoice with you? How can we pray for you? What sort of fruit is the Holy Spirit producing in the Tuscaloosa community around you? I want you to have a forum to share what the Lord is doing going forward. To share what the Lord is personally doing in your life and in the lives of people that you touch. I don't want to have business meetings where we're complaining all day and fighting over over dollars and cents. That's not what we're going to be about. 
Instead, I want to rejoice over the resources that God is providing to our church. This is an easy one here. Because you've been without a pastor for a year and a half. And church, let me tell you, you are in the black financially. I don't care where you thought maybe the money should have been spent. Maybe it should have gone here. Maybe it should have gone there. Can we just stop for a second and see that the Lord has carried you for a year and a half almost? He has carried you. Can we not? Just stop complaining and stop for just a second and think, wow, look at what he's done. Miraculously, he held us together without anybody in the pastorate. He carried you. That's a small miracle. Can we start rejoicing over that fruit? Third, we're going to shift the conversation from the past to the present and future. There may have been a lot of things that have gone on. Some of those you may look at as the glory days with nostalgia. I'm not nostalgic, but man, I used to be. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. (laughs) You can plagiarize that. You can use it. You don't have to give me credit. (laughs) Some of you are like, what's so funny? I don't get it. Uh, Some of them may have been the glory days. Some of them may be days that you care not to think about. But here's what we're going to do from now on. To focus on the present and the future, I can tell you a few things that are going to make up my days for the next year at least. All right? Before anything else begins to really start to happen, these are the things that are going to consist, be consistent in our congregation. First, I'm going to preach. And you're going to get used to hearing me. That's no small feat. All right? I'm going to get used to the daily rhythms of preparation and, and preaching and pastoring and having meetings and talking with people and loving on you. Doing weddings and hopefully not funerals, but probably funerals. Second, we're going to pray as a congregation. We're going to have times where we receive instruction on what prayer is and what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish, some specific prayer requests, ways we want the Lord to move in the community around us, through us, ways we need to see doors opened. We're going to have times where we gather together as a church body and we just pray. All six of us that may be there at the time. We're going to pray for growth too. Third, we're going to exercise patience. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither are healthy churches. We're going to exercise patience. There are going to be some days that you think, this looks ugly. (laughs) This ain't going quite the way we we really want it to. And there are going to be some days where you think, ah, a lot's changing. The future's bright. I think we're headed in the right direction. You're going to see a mixture of those two things probably, at least for the first year, probably on into the future as well. But we're going to trust the Lord and believe that a vibrant, growing, healthy church is on our horizon. And we're going to put in the work that it's going to take to get there and to sustain it by the Lord's help. Last, we're going to evangelize. (laughs) I 
I thought, why waste the alliteration? <laughs> Proselytizing just doesn't sound as good. Evangelism sounds better, so it doesn't start with a P. So we're just going to make it start with a P. It's a P evangelize. Um, <laughs> now, I'm not talking about a program of evangelism. I'm not talking about every Tuesday we're going to start knocking on doors, and that's how you check the box of evangelism. Now, we may do some of that, but that's not what I'm talking about mainly here. I'm talking about creating a culture of evangelism within our church body and moving out into the community at large. I want to provide training for you to overcome objections that people are having to the gospel, articulating the gospel clearly, and then rejoicing over those evangelistic conversations that you're having with people in your community. Brothers and sisters, I believe that God has great things in store for this church, for our church. And I believe that a healthy, growing, vibrant church is on the horizon. But we have to unite around more than Alabama football. Heaven and hell is at stake. People are dying every single day in Tuscaloosa without the gospel. So let's move outside of these walls. Let's talk to people. Let's get to know them. Let's really care for them as people made in the image of God. And let's tell them about Jesus. Let's become kingdom-focused and heavenly-minded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for this community, for its passions, its concerns, its cares, even its problems. I'm so grateful that you have brought me here to expose the dark corners of my heart. To not let me get away scot-free either, but own up to the things that I've done as well. Ways I've let my own sinful nature get in the way. I pray, Lord, that you unite us as a body. Not around a personality, not around even a sermon, but around your son, a name above every name. That we would bow our knees and confess with our tongues that he is Lord to the glory of you. I pray that we would joyfully submit to that. That we would love one another because of this heavenly hope, that we would love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're going to spend eternity with. I pray, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts. I pray that you would move in us and convict us where we have been decidedly against that, that we would just own up to the parts we play in strife and conflict. Lord, give us hope. Help us to center our message around Christ, around the proclamation of the gospel. Let us lift high his name for the community of Tuscaloosa. And give the culture what will truly fulfill the longing in our heart, which is Christ. Pray you would do that in and through our church here at Emmanuel Baptist. In Jesus' name, amen.